Good morning. Our scripture reading today is in Genesis chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. If you're using a pew Bible, that can be found on page 14. From there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say that to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands have I done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God in, at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother." Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Well, having heard from God in the reading of his word, let's talk to God through prayer and ask for his help in this sermon. Father, we thank you for your word. It's the word of Christ. And whether we come ready to hear it, or whether we've arrived indifferent to it, or even hostile to it, we know that you are sovereign over our ears, over our hearts. And so I pray that you would do good for us, do good for our souls in the preaching of the word of Christ today. Please, O oh God, anoint this preaching with your Holy Spirit with power. We ask it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. I have to confess to you that I was a lousy college student. I stayed up late partying before God saved me. But even after that, I struggled with sleeping in and goofing off and skipping classes. And as a result, I failed classes. And so in May 2004, four years after I had graduated from high school, the month I should have been graduating from the University of Georgia, I was still far from graduation. Since I wasn't graduating and moving away to begin a career, I stayed in Athens, Georgia that summer and worked and led the music for our church's college ministries weekly worship services. And on the last Wednesday in May 2004, as I was on the platform getting ready to lead our singing, I saw seated in the second or third row to my left a beautiful, tall, fair-skinned brunette. And I remember saying to myself, I'm going to introduce myself to her tonight. And I did. And she told me her name was Sarah Lawrence, and we quickly became friends. And a couple of years later, we went on our first date. And a year and a half after that, thankfully, she was Sarah Kimbrell. I've often thought of the measureless grace God showed me in that season. Remember, I was still a college student when I met Sarah because of my sin, my laziness, my poor stewardship of the opportunity the Lord had given me to receive a college education. I hadn't graduated in May 2004 because of my sin. But it was in May 2004 that I met the woman who's been the greatest gift to me other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And I conclude from that that the Lord is gracious to sinners. My sin didn't stop the Lord accomplishing his plan for me to give me Sarah as my wife. Now I tell you that story because in our text today, which Janine just read, we're going to see God be gracious to another sinner. To put a finer point on it, we're going to see that nothing, not even sin, will stop God from accomplishing his saving purposes that he means to accomplish for his people. The saving purposes that he means to accomplish in your life, believer. And that is really good news because some of you arrive here with a sinful past that you're sure is going to dog you until the day you die, and you do wonder whether the Lord is indeed able to do you saving good and not ill as a result of your sin. And others of you arrive here paralyzed and unable to move forward in life because you're fearful that if you make a wrong decision, if you sin in one way or another, you're going to thwart God's good plan for you somehow. All of us, for one reason or another, need the reminder that this text is giving us that nothing, not even sin, can keep God from accomplishing his good, saving purposes for his people. So we're in Genesis chapter 20. And the story of Genesis turned its attention to Lot and to God's rescue of Lot and his daughters from the fiery destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah last week. But now, with chapter 20, the spotlight is shining once again on Abraham. 
Verse 1 of chapter 20 says, from there. That's because the last time we saw Abraham, he was encamped by the oaks of Mamre, about 20 miles southwest of what would eventually be Jerusalem. And so from Mamre, we're told that Abraham heads further southwest to Gerar. And Gerar should only mean something to you because that's in Philistine territory. And we don't know what compels Abraham to move from Mamre to Gerar. We do know that his life was marked by living in tents and moving as a nomad from one place to another because, as the writer to the Hebrews puts it, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose builder and designer is God. But while Abraham's in Gerar, we see him pull the same stunt that we saw him pull back in chapter 12 when he and his wife Sarah went down to Egypt because of a severe famine. Keep a marker in Genesis chapter 20, and let's remind ourselves what happened back in Egypt in Genesis chapter 12. Turn with me there, please, to Genesis chapter 12, just a few chapters before. We'll be back in Genesis 20 in just a bit, but I want to see that what we really have in Genesis 20 is is part two. Look with me at chapter 12 beginning at verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, this is Abraham and Sarah, they've had a name change since since this episode, but it's the same people. He said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So Abraham and Sarah, they go down to Egypt. Abraham tells Sarah, you need to say you're my sister so that they don't kill me and take you. But Pharaoh gets wind of her beauty, and he brings her into his harem until the Lord afflicts Pharaoh, and he lets Sarah return to Abraham. That was in Genesis chapter 12. Now let's go back to Genesis chapter 20. Various time markers in Genesis help us to see that more than 20 years have passed between Abraham and Sarah's sojourn in Egypt in chapter 12 and their sojourn here in Gerar in Genesis chapter 20. But in 20 years, apparently, Abraham still hasn't learned his lesson. Once again, he's not letting anyone know Sarah is his wife. He identifies her only as his sister. Abraham knows what could happen because it already happened down in Egypt. The ruler of the land in which they sojourned could see Sarah, see that she's beautiful, and take her into his harem. And indeed, just like it happened in Egypt, so it happens again here. Verse 2 says of Genesis chapter 20 that Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. And not to put too fine a point on it, but Abimelech didn't send for Sarah and take her because he wanted her to be a part of his sewing circle. This is a sinful, cowardly act on the part of Abraham in regard to his wife. So verses 1 and 2 provide the background for the story that unfolds beginning in verse 3. The rest of this drama unfolds first with God's interaction with Abimelech in verses 3 to 7. 
So the Bible says that God appears to Abimelech in a dream. He pronounces a death sentence upon him because he's taken another man's wife. It doesn't matter that Abimelech's doing this centuries before God gave the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai that forbid adultery. Adultery isn't just an Israelite law. Adultery goes to the very foundation of marriage that was established at creation. And so marital faithfulness is required of anyone in a husband-wife relationship. And so Abimelech had taken another man's wife, the wife of a prophet we're going to see, and he stood to die for it. So in response, still in the context of this dream, Abimelech pleads to the Lord his innocence. He reminds the Lord that Abraham said Sarah was his sister, and Sarah said that Abraham was her brother. So Abimelech can say in truth that he didn't know he was taking Abraham's wife. And in verses 6 and 7, God acknowledges that Abimelech took Sarah in ignorance. And what grace, isn't it? God shows Abimelech by appearing to him in a dream to warn him about Sarah. Pharaoh doesn't get a warning like that in chapter 12, and he was struck by plagues. But God does warn Abimelech so that he doesn't become physically intimate with Sarah. And in this dream, God instructs Abimelech to return Sarah to Abraham. As I say in verse 7, God reveals that Abraham is a prophet. That's the first time we've seen that said of Abraham. In fact, it's the first time we've seen anyone called a prophet in the Bible up till now. And on the basis of Abraham's being a prophet, God tells Abimelech, return Sarah to Abraham, and Abraham will pray for you so that you don't die. And then the exchange between God and Abimelech ends with God reiterating, if you don't return Sarah to Abraham, be sure of it. You're going to die you and everyone who's under you. Thus ends the exchange between God and Abimelech. Then Moses records for us the exchange between Abimelech and Abraham in verses 8 through 16. Before the two of them interact, though, look at the beginning of verse 8. Abimelech does exactly what God says to him via last night's dream, and he does it with haste. Verse 8 says, So Abimelech rose early in the morning, He wants to get this done quickly. He believes what God said to him in the dream. Early in the morning, Abimelech reports the content of his dream to his servants, who are justifiably very much afraid, verse 8 says. And Abimelech sends for Abraham, and at least as I read it, he kind of lays into it. And I can understand why. I mean, just look at all the questions. What have you done to us? Abimelech asks. Already in Genesis, we know we're to be on the alert when we hear a question like that. It's a question that accompanies an evil act. Isn't that what God asks Eve in Genesis 3.13? After she succumbs to the serpent's temptation and eats the forbidden fruit, God says, what is this that you've done? So Abimelech asks Abraham, what have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you've brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? What did you see that you did this thing? Abimelech's really interrogating Abraham. And you get it because Abraham's deception could have resulted in Abimelech's death and the death of everyone under him if he had been physically intimate with Sarah, if he had not returned her to Abraham. As it is, as we're going to see in a few verses, he already stands in need of healing because of Abraham and Sarah. So Abimelech has a few questions for Abe. 
And Abraham defends himself. Verse 11, he says, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place and they'll kill me because of my wife. This is a moment of a flagging faith from Abraham. Remember, he's already seen mighty acts of God's power. Most recently in the supernatural destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And that ought to have told Abraham that God is able to protect Abraham's life without his having to resort to cowardly half-truths about Sarah. And then he explains to Abimelech, it's true that she's my sister, she's my half-sister. So Abraham wasn't lying when he called her his sister. He explains that years before, we saw it back in Genesis 12, didn't he? He, he hatched this little plot with Sarah, wherever we go, say of me, he's my brother. And Sarah did that. She did it in Egypt. Now she's done it in Gerar. But in both instances, it results in her being taken from her husband and gathered into a godless pagan ruler's harem. And so I want you to know that when Abraham is saying to Sarah to tell people he's my brother, what he's saying to her is, listen, I'm not going to risk myself for you. I want you to risk yourself for me. It's not Abraham saying to his wife, Sweetheart, my life for yours. It's Abraham saying to Sarah, no, your life for mine. But regardless of Abraham's flimsy excuses, we see in verse 14, Abimelech's going to return Sarah to Abraham because of God's message to him in the dream. But not only does he return Sarah... Because Abraham is a prophet of the God who was going to take Abimelech's life and the lives of all who belong to him, Abimelech gives Abraham both Sarah and livestock, male and female, slaves, and even a thousand pieces of silver. And Abimelech says, I'm giving you all these gifts to vindicate my innocence. I have not been with Sarah. And what we saw in Genesis chapter 12 happens again, doesn't it? This isn't the first time that Abraham and Sarah have plundered a people who weren't worshipers of the Lord. Maybe you remember that back in chapter 12, Pharaoh, because he was pleased with Sarah, this beautiful woman, gave to Abraham animals and slaves. And here again in chapter 20, we have pagans adding to Abraham's ever-growing wealth with gifts of animals and slaves and money. Remember who the first audience of Genesis is. It's the Israelite generation that came out of Egypt in the Exodus. That's who Moses is writing the book of Genesis to. Just like God said would happen when the nation of Israel left Egypt in the Exodus, they plundered the Egyptians, didn't they? Of silver and gold jewelry and clothing. The Bible says in Exodus that whatever the Israelites asked for of the Egyptians, the Egyptians gave them. And so we see again that God causes his people to plunder his enemies. God causes his people to plunder the enemies of God. God causes his people to plunder those who don't have faith in God. And in this age that you and I live in, this age of redemptive history, our plundering 
is the plundering of souls that we take from God's enemy, the devil, when we preach the gospel and sinners are saved and they're delivered, as Paul said to the Colossians, from the domain of darkness and they're transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved son. There's a plundering that's still going on that this plundering points to. But notice Abraham doesn't just plunder the Philistines of livestock and slaves and money. Notice verse 15. Abimelech tells him, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. This is Philistine land being given to Abraham and to all who belong to him. Why is that important? Because the Philistines were uh, occupied a portion of Canaan, the promised land, the land that Moses was leading this Exodus generation to conquer and to occupy. And they ought to have read verses like this and been given assurance that God would certainly cause them to conquer and to occupy Canaan, but they didn't believe. And so they didn't occupy Canaan. It was the generation after the Exodus generation, the generation led by Joshua who actually went into Canaan and conquered and subdued it and took up residence in it. And then our text ends in verses 17 and 18 with a sort of prologue. In these verses, we see that Abraham, in his role as a prophet, does pray to God on Abimelech's behalf, as verse 7 said. And we see that Abraham's intercession to God for Abimelech is heard. Abimelech and his wife and his female slaves are healed. And it appears from these verses that the healing they needed had to do with bearing children. God had stricken them while Sarah was with Abimelech so that he couldn't produce children and so that no children were born of his wife or his female slaves. And it's really very helpful to us that Moses gives us this detail. Why? Because it guarantees that the baby born to Sarah in the next chapter is indeed Abraham's son and not Abimelech's. Remember, ever since Genesis 3.15, do you remember the promise there? I will put enmity, God says, between you He's talking to the serpent, Satan. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Her seed, the seed of the woman, God says to Satan, is going to crush your head and you shall crush his heel. And ever since we see that promise in Genesis 3.15, we've been looking in Genesis for who that seed's going to be. Who's going to be the one to crush the serpent's head? Who's going to be the one to undo the curse that was placed on all creation because of, because of Adam's sin? And as we've been looking in Genesis for that seed, Moses has directed our attention to Abraham. The seed promised in Genesis 3.15 must come from his line. The promise that God makes to Abraham in Genesis 12, and, and as that promise is reiterated and, and expanded upon in later chapters, it's clear the seed's going to come from Abraham's line. We know that. And at least since Genesis 17, it's clear that the seed has to come from Sarah too. Do you remember when God seemed slow about bringing about the promised seed. And Abraham says in Genesis 17, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. That was Abraham's son with a slave, Hagar. Abraham says to God, take this son of mine, my son with Sarah's slave, Hagar. God says in Genesis 17, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. 
and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. What does all this mean? It means that the long-awaited promised seed must come, God has made clear, from Abraham and Sarah. And so it's really helpful for us when we get to Genesis chapter 21 and Sarah miraculously delivers a child in her old age. It's helpful that Moses lets us see that that baby can't be Abimelech's. It must and does belong to Abraham and Sarah together. But that's for next week. Now, what do you do with an episode like this? How do you apply it to your life? Well, in at least a couple of ways. First, by rejoicing in the fact that the one who is ultimately the promised seed of Abraham, the one who Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 calls the son of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, you apply this text by rejoicing that he is better than his ancestor Abraham. First, rejoice in the fact that the Lord Jesus is a better bridegroom than we see from Abraham here. Remember how we saw in Genesis chapter 12 that Abraham tells Sarah, say you're my sister that it may go well with me because of you. Say you're my sister that my life may be spared for your sake. Do you hear what Abraham is saying to Sarah in those sentences? He's saying, I want you to risk being taken into another man's house so that it may go well with me because of you. I want you to risk yourself that my life may be spared for your sake. That's what Abraham says to his bride. He says, risk your neck to save my neck, Sarah. Your life for mine. I'm willing to sacrifice your purity and safety for my life. Do you hear how Abraham's saying that to her? But that's not the bridegroom that the Lord Jesus is toward his bride, the church, is it? Jesus doesn't say to us, your life for mine. He says to us, my life for yours. He doesn't say, I'll risk you so that it goes well with me. He doesn't say, I'll risk you that my life may be spared. Instead, he says, I'll risk me that it may go well for you. I'll risk me so that your life is spared. And he doesn't just say it. He did it. That's what the eternal second person of the Trinity, the, the uncreated God taking on created flesh when he was born as a man in Bethlehem, that is what he's saying when he comes to earth as the God-man. He's saying, my life to save yours. And the culmination of that, of course, is the cross. When Paul tells husbands in Ephesians 5 to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, what is the apostle saying? Abraham gave his bride up for himself, but Jesus gave himself up for his bride, the church. I hope that's landing. I hope that's clear. For our life, he died. 
for our eternal life and for our salvation. He died for us in our place, in our stead, as our substitute on the cross. Because we couldn't pay with a thousand eternities the debt of sin we owed toward God. The Lord Jesus Christ willingly had our sin debt accounted to him. And he satisfied the Father's righteous wrath toward us because of our sin. And he did it by the sacrifice of his own body and his own blood at the cross. My life for yours, Jesus said to his bride. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his bride's purity to save his own hide, wasn't he? Letting Sarah go into the harem of Pharaoh and Abimelech, but not the better bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. He offered his life for his bride's purity. He was willing to die for the purity of his bride. That's what Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That, so that he might sanctify her. He might purify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. The apostles saying that Jesus gave himself up for his bride, the church, so that he might purify his bride and cleanse her and have her presented to himself in the last day without spot or wrinkle in splendor and without blemish. That's how you begin to apply Genesis chapter 20, brother and sister, by rejoicing that you have a better bridegroom than Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, who dies for his bride, who dies for her life and for her purity and for her holiness and for her salvation. We have a better bridegroom. In the same vein, the Lord Jesus is a better prophet than Abraham. We see from verse 7 that Abraham's a prophet, but Jesus is a better prophet because he was the only sinless prophet. He's the only prophet to live in unbroken covenant faithfulness to God, but Jesus is a better prophet than Abraham chiefly because he doesn't just speak the word of God in his prophetic office. Unlike any other prophet, he is the word of God. He's the final and complete revelation of God to man. Likewise, the Lord Jesus is a better intercessor than Abraham. We see Abraham interceding for Abimelech, and God hears, and he answers Abraham's prayer, just like God did when we saw Abraham interceding for Lot before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Still, though, Abraham's not the intercessor that Jesus is. Jesus is the better intercessor between God and man because he intercedes as the great high priest who doesn't have to make atonement for his own sin, whose term doesn't end when he dies. He lives forever. He intercedes as the only real intercessor between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, as Paul said to Timothy. Jesus is the better intercessor because he intercedes in the better place. He intercedes in the holy of holies, in the heavenly temple, not made with hands in the very presence of God. And he's the better intercessor because he intercedes on behalf of the only really efficient sacrifice for sins, 
his own body and his own blood offered for his people at the cross. And what an intercessor he is. When Paul wants to encourage the Romans not to fear condemnation, what does he write in Romans chapter 8? He says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Brother and sister, that ought to give you a chance to breathe a huge sigh of relief. Jesus is praying for you. The Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Yes, and he's doing it as the true and the better intercessor. And he is interceding for you if you have faith in him, beloved. So you apply Genesis 20 by rejoicing, brother and sister, in the promised seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the better bridegroom. He's the better prophet. He's the better intercessor. And he's all those things to and for his people, the church. Now let me ask you, does rejoicing seem an impractical application for you? Does it seem a little bit far removed from your real life for me to apply a text by telling you to rejoice in Christ? I hope to change your way of thinking if that's how you think. Because rejoicing in Christ is some of the most practical, helpful application I can give you. Because rejoicing in Christ is what the Bible says Christians do. Paul says to the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Peter says to his persecuted audience, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It is eminently practical and helpful and good for us to be reminded of some of the reasons why we can and ought to rejoice in Christ and to seek to grow in our love and affection and adoration of the Lord Jesus. And this text gives us some of those reasons. But there's a second way I think we can apply this text. And it's to see that nothing will stop God from keeping his saving promises to his people. Do you see what God did here to preserve the line of the promised seed? Do you see what God did to make sure that all his promises to Abraham would come to pass? He sovereignly caused Abimelech and his wife and his female slaves to be stricken so that they would bear no children until after Sarah had been returned to Abraham. There wasn't a chance that God's saving promises made to Abraham would fail. Not even Abraham's sin sinfully and cowardly making his wife available to Abimelech. Not even Abraham's sin would stop the Lord from bringing the promised child from the union of Abraham and Sarah, the child from whom would ultimately come the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, not even the greatest, vilest, most heinous sin in history 
would stop God's saving plan. God would redeem the vilest sin actually to bring about the salvation of his people. I'm talking, of course, about Christ's death on the cross. What wickedness, what what evil when Jesus' own brothers, according to the flesh, the Jews, conspired with the pagan occupying Roman government to have Jesus arrested and tried and killed on a cross, hanging as a naked spectacle in a punishment reserved for criminals. And yet that wickedness, that sin, Jesus' death on the cross, and Peter's clear in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 that it's sin. He says, you crucified, you killed by the hands of lawless men. Yet it was that death on the cross, and it was Jesus' resurrection from the dead three days later that accomplished our salvation. It was the beginning of the saving promises of God all coming to pass. And so, brother and sister, listen, take heart. If the most grievous sin in history can be redeemed by the Lord for the salvation of his people, then nothing can stop God's saving promises from being accomplished. Not Abraham giving Sarah to Abimelech, not the Messiah being killed, nothing. And that means, brother and sister, that you can rest. You can rest in the knowledge that you can't wreck his saving plan for you either. Now, what does that mean in real life? It means that you aren't mighty enough to wreck God's saving purposes for you. Doesn't Genesis 20 tell us that in like six-foot neon letters? Abraham's sinful cowardice didn't stop God's saving promise from coming to pass. And you aren't mighty enough to wreck God's saving purposes for you either. Now, don't be foolish and take that as a license to go around doing a bunch of stupid stuff and testing the Lord. No, that's a pattern of living that would reveal you've never been born again. But some of you need to remember what Paul said to the Romans at the end of Romans 5. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. We sang it earlier today, didn't we? Grace, grace, God's grace, grace. It is greater than all our sin. Christian, if you are in Christ, your sin will never cause God to wash his hands of you. Going to him to confess and seek his mercy and forgiveness for sin will never cause the Lord to give up on you. Even in regard to sin, you've confessed, it seems, a thousand times. No sin, not even your own, will cause God's saving promises for any of his people from coming to pass. Now, how can I say that so confidently? Is it because God's the, the kind of God who doesn't get uptight about silly little things like sin? You know, God's attitude is, what's a couple of sins between friends? No. God takes sin deadly seriously. The punishment for unforgiven sin is eternity in conscious torment in a lake of both fire and at the same time outer darkness. A place of weeping and gnashing of teeth that never ends and never lessens. 
I can say what I'm saying about God's grace towards sinners confidently because the Bible says, Christian, that when Jesus paid for your sin debt with his body and blood on the cross, he paid it in full, past, present, and future. And so my brother, my sister, rest in Christ. Rest in the knowledge that your sin can't wreck his saving plan for you. As I've thought about it, another way to apply that truth, I think, is in regard to your decision-making. You're free, Christian, to make decisions. You're free to do something without worrying about whether you're going to thwart God's good, saving purposes for you. I've talked with many of you, and I know that you don't, you'd rather sort of operate at a 100% confidence interval about everything. <laughs> and you suffer from analysis paralysis because you don't like to make decisions that you lack 100% certainty about. And so you worry that you're going to make the wrong decision and somehow mess up the whole of the rest of your life. And so you don't do anything until you've talked to 100 people 200 different times and you've read four books and watched eight YouTube videos and all of the rest. And I know you because I am you. And I have good news for you. At the end of the book of Job, after the Lord has taken Job behind the woodshed, because Job dared to think it was appropriate to argue with God, even his suffering, Job 42.2 says, Job's saying to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And so Christian, this means that you can feel free to make a decision with less than 100% confidence. If an option before you that you're trying to decide on isn't sin, according to what the scriptures call sin, and there aren't godly, wise people in your life saying don't do it, then you're free to do it. And you're free to stop worrying that somehow you're powerful enough to do something that would cause the omnipotent Lord God Almighty to say, well, I would have done this good thing for him or her, but then they did that and now my hands are tied. No. Your God is all-powerful and he's all-wise and he's all-sovereign and his saving purposes for you will surely come to pass. He is going to finish the good work that he began in you, Christian. He's going to get you all the way home. He's going to continue to conform you until you are entirely, entirely remade in the image of his son and you perfectly reflect the glory of his son to a restored universe. There's so many ways to apply this. I could go on and tell you as we've been telling you in Genesis up till now that the fact that God will stop at nothing to keep his saving promises to his people, come what may, that's a powerful and effective antidote to your despair and your depression and your anxiety and your worriedness and your discontentment. That's a mighty weapon in your arsenal against all those things, reminding yourself, thinking on what it means that he saved you by faith in his son, and that he's going to complete that salvation at the last day. But I want to speak for a minute to you who are outside of Christ. 
And I want to say to you with love that you can't enjoy any of the assurances that I've been comforting believers with this morning because they apply only to those who've repented from their sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus to bring them peace with God. If you haven't turned from your sin and turned to God through faith in Jesus Christ, you don't enjoy the rest that comes from knowing that the Lord Jesus is your better bridegroom and better prophet and better intercessor. Because for you, he's your judge. In Acts chapter 17, Paul says that God commands all people everywhere to repent. That includes you, unbeliever. He commands you to repent because, Paul says, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And that man is Jesus. And on the day when Jesus returns to complete the salvation of his people, the day we're praying for, the day we're longing for, the day we prayed for earlier when we prayed the Lord's Prayer, on that day, he will consummate your eternal sentence of death. My unbelieving friend, listen. It is he, Jesus, about whom John writes in Revelation 19. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. My unbelieving friend, listen to me. You don't want Jesus to be your judge. His wrath will be furious and it will be terrible. On the day when he returns, Revelation 6 says that even kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the power, uh, powerful and everyone, slave and free, including you, if you're outside of Christ, will call out to the mountains and rocks. They'll call out and say, fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That's what you'll cry out. So I plead with you, you who are outside of Christ, you don't have to have Jesus for your judge. Come to him. Come to him. Turn from your sin and come to him by repentance and faith. He receives Sinners like you. He received a sinner like me. You're not worse than I am. And he'll receive you if you come to him in repentance from your sin and in faith, trusting in him alone to forgive your sin, trusting in him to give you eternal life, peace with God, fellowship with him both now and eternally. Come to Christ, you who are unbelieving. Pray right now if you'd like and ask God to save you. Genesis chapter 20 says to us who are in Christ, rest. If God has saved you, nothing, not even your sin, will keep him from keeping the saving promises that he's made to his people through his son. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we wouldn't be foolish 
and think that your kindness is meant to do anything but lead us to repentance. But I also pray that we who are in Christ would not despair about whether we can somehow stop your good saving purposes for us from coming to pass. Thank you, O God, for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the faithful bridegroom and prophet and intercessor. I pray that you'd give us faith in him all the way to the end. And we pray in his name. Amen.